just want to remind you, you know, that we have been talking about the gospel of God. And the book of Romans is unpacking uh, the, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel. Uh, in the first week, looking at Romans chapter 1, we talked about the gospel of God, how the gospel belongs to God. He sets the terms for the gospel. He defines how we come to him through his son Jesus. Um, we said that the gospel of God means that the gospel is about God. That the gospel is good news about God himself. It reveals his character. That the gospel reveals his righteousness. That, that when we think about the gospel, the primary thing that should come into our mind is, wow, our God is righteous. Our God is wise. Our God is good. It should never turn inward to ourselves. But it should always point, point us and bring our hearts um, up into worship of God. Um, then last time we were together, um, in the second half of Romans chapter 1, we talked about how the gospel, this euangelion, this good news, um, in order for it to be good news, it has to sort of invade uh, a bad situation. It has to break into bad news to bring good news. And the bad situation in which the gospel invades is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. We spent time talking about how the universal condition of all mankind is one to suppress the truth about God. That, that everyone knows God because God has revealed himself plainly in what he has created. He's given us consciences and things like that, which we'll discuss in more detail tonight. And the universal condition of man is to take this knowledge of God that has been made plain by him and to suppress it rather than to take this knowledge and to turn towards God and give thanks to Him and to worship Him as God, we've taken this knowledge and we've suppressed it. We've pushed it down like that beach ball in the swimming pool that you try to keep below the water, but it keeps popping back up. right? And so the Gospel comes into this situation where all of us have rebelled against God. We have become idolaters. Right? And we talked about the expression of idolatry, particularly in sexual immorality, and particularly in that case, homosexuality, um, and how that homosexuality is this sort of object lesson of the depth of uh, idolatry, where self-identity and turning inward into loving and worshiping self and your self-image, rather than the diversity of male and female which God has created, is, is an example of the foolishness of idolatry. And so, as we move on tonight into chapter 2, and, and the goal is to cover all of chapter 2 tonight, so I hope you brought your sleeping bags. <laughs> but as we move into chapter 2, I want you just to kind of take your Bible and just kind of skim through the language in chapter 1. Just, just to look through it in chapter 2, and you'll notice that there's a shift. There's a shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and that shift, the shift is the subject in discussion. Who, who are the people that Paul is talking about? In chapter 1, the subject is primarily them. Right? We see that they did that. They did this. They did this, right? They do this. So the audience and the subject there is primarily them. And from this Paul's perspective, the them would be Gentiles, pagans, those unbelievers who 
uh, don't have God's word, don't submit to God's law, who aren't, in other words, who aren't Jews in the first century or, or Christians. And so when we see the, the subject in chapter 1, it's primarily sin. And, and then in chapter 2, it abruptly shifts to you. Right? And so we'll see that. And so what we'll see is it shifts to saying, yeah, we, we know that the judgment of God, God's wrath is being re- revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Right? And it's for them, those, those sinners out there in the world. Chapter 2 moves into saying, yes, and God will judge you even if you're a Jew. Even if you're a Jew, God will judge you. We see that the judgment and wrath of God isn't just for those people out there who don't have God's word. Judgment, the judgment of God is inevitable even for and especially for those who know the word of God, which is the audience that most of us fall into. We know the word of God. We, we're around that. We, we, we are uh, the chapter 2 people that Paul is addressing here. And so the title of tonight's sermon is The Inevitability of Judgment. The Inevitability of Judgment. So let's stand together to honor the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read all of chapter 2. This is God's Word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, 
a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. God, as we come now to your Word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us tonight. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So there's a lot going on in chapter 2, but it really boils down to this one thing. The inevitability of judgment. The judgment is inevitable. Both human judgment and divine judgment. So tonight we're going to try to uh, answer kind of how do we deal with that reality. Um, so as I said, the title is The Inevitability of Judgment. And here are my, my three points of the outline uh, that we're going to be going through. Point number one, get off your high horse. Number one, get off your high horse. And that could be, you know, take up the offering, sing the just as I am and we end the night. Uh, but get off your high horse. Number two, the moral law of God. The moral law of God. Number three, what makes a Jew a Jew? What makes a Jew a Jew? So that's where we're going. Um, first, we'll start with point number one. Get off your high horse. As we pointed out earlier, this chapter begins with a shift. It begins with a therefore. In chapter one, Paul has demonstrated the universal awareness of God and God's moral requirements. He demonstrated the pervasiveness of sin, the foolishness of idolatry, and the heinousness of, our, of the rebellion of God that is found primarily among the Gentiles. He says, those people who are far from God and His law are corrupted and rebellious sinners who know they are without excuse, anapologetus, without excuse, they know they're without excuse before a holy God, yet they continue in their rebellion. And not only do they continue in their rebellion, but they encourage others to join along with them. And then from there, he moves right in chapter 2, Therefore, you have no excuse. It's an abrupt shift there. Those people out there, they do these things, they're wicked. Therefore, you have no excuse. Paul has turned the tables on the audience here. He, he knows his audience here in the church of Rome. He knows this particularly religious audience, especially the Jews among them. 
would be ready in chapter 1. They would be amening and they'd be following along and they'd be ready to join in and cast judgment on the sinners. And then Paul turns that impulse to judge back on themselves. So the beginning of chapter 2 is that sort of uh, moment where it's like, you know, you point your finger at me, but there's three fingers pointing back to you. It's that kind of situation that Paul brings into play here. So he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he, he flips it on them. He turns it right on them. He brings it to the you. And this, this brings up a point when it, when it comes to preaching. There's a, a preacher named Paul Washer. He, he says that the preaching is in the use. He said, you really had not started preaching to people until you start saying, you are a sinner. And there's an impulse that I have to just say, we are, are sinners and we all do this. But sometimes with the preaching, you've got to say the you. Just like when uh, David is confronted with his sin, right? After the sin with Bathsheba. He comes up, he says, David, the prophet says, you are the man. Not, not we, are all, we are all the man. We are all sexually depraved and we do bad things from time to time, right? He goes, no, David, you are the man. And that's what Paul does to us right here. He says, yeah, we all agree that those pagan Gentiles who are in their debauchery deserve death under the wrath of God. Therefore, you have no excuse. Not just that they have no excuse, but you have no excuse. Why? Because you know that they deserve to die, and you do the same things. And you do the same things. So before we move on, we need to talk just briefly about this verse. Um, and, and briefly just say what this verse doesn't mean. This, this is a verse that's often taken out of context um, to support what Paul's not saying here. This, this verse does not mean uh, that Christians are forbidden from making moral judgments. So Paul's not saying here that we Christians aren't allowed to make moral judgments of other people. It's not what he's saying. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we are commanded to make right moral judgments. For example, Jesus himself in John 7, 24 says that when you judge, judge with right judgment. Um, the, the, the famous parable of the, uh, the plank eye situation, right? He says, Jesus says to take the plank out of your eye, you know, don't worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye. First, take the plank out of your eye so that you will be able to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So he's not saying don't judge at all. Don't worry about the speck in their eye. He's saying don't be a hypocrite. Don't try to get the speck out of their eye if you've got a massive plank sticking out of your eye. Take the plank out first and then see to removing the speck from your neighbor's eye. So Christians are encouraged and commanded to make right moral judgment. This passage is not forbidding Christians from making moral judgment. So what does, it, what does this mean? This is demonstrating the inevitability of human judgment. And that inevitability of human judgment proves the inevitability of divine judgment. So I hope you're, you track with me here. I know that's, that's like a little bit of a step. The inevitability of human judgment, the fact that we see things and say, that's wrong, that's right, that is good, that is beautiful, that is true, this is not 
demonstrates that there is a divine judgment, right, that we are living under as well. See, um, this impulse to judge others, which everyone has, even the people who says, you can't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. Why are you judging me? Right? Then you say to them, why are you judging me? You're judging me for judging you. Right? Why is it wrong that I'm judging you? You've made that judgment that I am judging you and that that is wrong. You have just made moral judgment that I am immoral because I'm judging you. That is a judgment that you came to. By what standard? You see, by what standard is my judgment wrong but yours is okay? Right? We all judge. It's inevitable. That's this, this term that's kind of it's like a pet peeve of mine is the word discrimination. The word discrimination. We can't discriminate. We can't discriminate. You discriminate every single day. You discriminated. Do you want tea or do you want water? And you preferred one of the other. We want to discriminate justly. Now, what most people mean by that is we don't want to be negatively prejudicial, prejudicial towards other people that have like, negatively impacted them. But discrimination, like a non-discrimination policy, is impossible. You, you always discriminate. Right? We wouldn't let you know, um, a, a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater in here because he would eat all the purple people. Right? We discriminate. None of those people are allowed. We made a moral judgment that one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eaters are not allowed here. Right? We made that moral judgment. And so by what standard do we judge? That is the question. See, uh, we swim in a world that promotes this idea of subjectivism. That truth is relative. Whatever is true for true, true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And you want to quickly disarm someone when they say that? Is that absolutely true? <laughs> then they'll get really aggravated with you. <laughs> but here's the thing. If sub subjectivism is true, there is no moral standards. There should be no oughts. A subjectivist should never say someone ought to or ought not to do anything. They can never say that in their world because it's subjective. There is no objective truth. There is no objective standard of morality. There is no oughts. But see, the world we actually live in we are all aware that there are oughts and ought nots. And we all have a basic agreement on what a lot of those are. Even in the corruption of our nature due to sin, we still have basic agreement. Um, you know, that if I just, you know, took out Ralph right here, that that would be wrong. <laughs> Almost every culture would agree that if I just murdered you right now, that that would be wrong, right? But in subjectivism world, why? It's my truth, right? What does his truth got to do with my truth, right? It's that's obviously that's an absurd illustration, but you get the point. Subjectivism does not logically lead to oughts or ought nots. And so, verse two moves on. Then he says, "We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things." We know this. They ought not to do such things, and they do them. 
and we have judged that. And we rightly know God's, it says God's judgment rightly falls, excuse me, rightly falls on them. Right? We know that this is the right thing to say, but here's the thing that he moves to. But you practice the same things. Then he moves into this question, who do you think you are? So here's the question for you. Who do you know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon? When you think of people that the judgment of God rightly falls upon, who are those people that come into your mind? That they, yeah, those people deserve hell. We, we don't want to believe in hell at all unless it's this person. And then, oh yeah, there's hell for them. Right? Not many people you know, have a problem with someone like Adolf Hitler going to hell. Right? So we're okay with that. Right? So, so you think of people who the judgment of God rightly falls upon. Have you judged them? Yes, you have. And, and often we judge rightly. People like murderers, like me if I took out Ralph. Rapists, oppressive rulers, these types of people who have no problem saying, yes, the judgment of God rightly falls upon them. Whom else have you judged to be immoral and deserving of judgment? <coughs> Liars, thieves, adulterers? And the question is, have you done these things? And you see the answer to that is yes. And so in the very act of judging others, you condemn yourself. The moment you say that the adulterer deserves the judgment of God, yet you act upon lust in your heart, you have condemned yourself in the casting of judgment. The moment that you say a murderer deserves hell and you have hatred in your heart towards someone else, and you think that the world would be better off without them, for your own good and your own purposes. You have condemned yourself in the judgment of others. See, he's not saying that you're condemned in the act of judging. In other words, it's not the act of judging that condemns you. No. It's in your admission of a moral standard that you don't even live up to yourself. Right? When you judge someone as rightly deserving the judgment of God, and yet you know deep in your heart you do the same thing. It may not manifest itself as publicly or even as heinously as these people, but you do the same very things. You are admitting that there's a moral standard that you don't live up to, and therefore the judgment of God should rightly fall upon you as well. And so we hear this hard truth that, that we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be judged by God and declared guilty. Subject to, to wrath and uh, tribulation and uh, distress and fury for our sin. And the default reaction to that in the flesh, sinners, is to suppress this truth suppress this truth. We don't want to deal with it. We take that ball, that beach ball, that just floated back up to the top, this conviction that we feel, condemnation that we feel, and rather than doing something with the ball, we, we press it back down. We suppress that truth. And here are two ways in which uh, we commonly suppress this truth. One is to make a false assumption about yourself. 
Both of these ways of suppressing the truth is ba are based on false assumptions. One is a false assumption about yourself, and that is this, verse 3, that you'll somehow escape God's judgment. That somehow you will escape God's judgment. Maybe you'll pull yourself together. Maybe you'll, you'll stop doing whatever you're doing that you know deserves the judgment of God, and you'll pull yourself together, and you'll get the hang of it, and you'll get your life and act together, and then escape the judgment of God. Or maybe you'll somehow pay off God by, by doing some good deeds, by helping an old lady cross the street, or, or maybe voting for a particular candidate or party, or maybe tweeting the hashtag, right? You, you think you can pay off God and pay off your conscience by doing some good things. It's a false assumption about yourself. Or maybe you think that you're somehow special. That you're special. Maybe you come from a good family. You've got money. And more likely, you have a civic righteousness. And I want to talk about this for just a second. As we go through Romans, especially these first few chapters, you're going to hear me over and over and over and over say that there is nothing good in you. There is no one who does good. We'll talk about that next week. No, not one. Right? You'll hear me say that over and over. And then you go, but I do good, do good things sometimes. Like, I'm not a horrible person. I could be a lot worse. You know, what's the commercial? I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. Right? And that's this idea of civic righteousness. Like, yeah, we admit that there are people who are good people. They have a civic righteousness. Compared to other humans, they are more morally upright than others. Right? That, that's legitimate. That's a thing. But what we're saying when we talk about righteousness before God is just that. It's before God. In comparison to God's surpassing righteousness and perfection and holiness, our civic righteousness is but filthy racks. It's, it's no good. It's actually, it's actually offensive to God to offer up such measly righteousness in light of His. That shows you how bad we actually are, that our good people are just filthy rags. Right? So the, the false assumption is that you'll somehow escape God's judgment because maybe you'll pull yourself together, maybe you're just someone special. And here's one that I want to talk about just uh, maybe uh, tenderly, but, but straight on. A very common thing that we see today is this that you think your circumstances in your life excuse you before God. That maybe you have been a victim of some sort of sin against you. Some trauma that you've experienced that then excuses your behavior today. So that you can do things that God declares sinful without the need to repent of those things because of your trauma. Because of the victim status that you have uh, and most times, rightly, uh, like you rightly you actually are a victim. I'm not saying there aren't victims and those things aren't unjust. But what I'm saying is you can't allow your past, injustice in your past, to justify ongoing sin once it has been made known to you. Right? And so your circumstances aren't going to excuse you before God, even if it's something sinful that happened to you that has caused trauma in your life. Right? And, and so if there, there are patterns of sin in your life, 
that you can put your finger on and say, this is the result of trauma. This is the result of someone sinning against me or a bad situation that has just messed me up, right? If you can point your finger on that, uh, the, the right thing to do is to say, oh, well, this explains everything and I can be comfortable knowing that this is the cause of my, my problems. What we do to that with that is we hand it to the Lord who is sovereign over all things and, and we learn how to put our past in its right place. Right? And that, that often involves much counseling with those who are, are, are not in your situation, who aren't in the pit of trauma, who aren't blinded by the pain to help you through that. And so if you're in that situation, cry out. Do not be embarrassed to say, I know this is a problem and this is why I need help. Because that's the only way you can get help is if you let someone who's not in the pit with you help you out of the pit. Right? And we do that with care and compassion because for two reasons. One, we don't want to see you hurting. We don't want to see you in despair. We don't want to see you chronically depressed because of this issue in your past. But the second thing is this. Even those sins against you will not excuse you if you are continuing to disobey God in what has been clearly revealed. And so there's that motivation as well. So we, we suppress the truth of the inevitable judgment of God by making false assumptions about ourselves. Then the second thing is we make false assumptions about God. And it, this one is rampant. And that is this that God will forgive without repentance. That God will forgive without repentance. That's verse 4. Right? He says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness and patience is meant to lead to repentance, not license. Right? I think, Sarah, this is a line with your question you asked a couple weeks ago about what people say, well, God will forgive me, or God, Jesus loves me. I am the way I am. I do the things that I do. Jesus loves me. He will forgive me if this is wrong. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the patience and grace of God, His kindness towards you, is meant to lead you to repentance, not to continue doing the things that you are doing. See, delayed judgment is not approval from God. Delayed judgment is not approval from God. Listen to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, you're not getting away with it just because you're getting away with it. If you're getting away with it, you're saying, I'm getting away with this. God must be cool with it. Maybe He's not. And maybe He's giving you an opportunity to repent before the wrath that your sin is building up, breaks upon your head. Maybe he's being patient. Maybe he is withholding judgment so that you would turn from your sin and be saved. You're not getting away with it just because you're getting away with it. In fact, the Bible warns us that unrepentant sin and a hard heart only erects a dam behind which the wrath of God is being stored up day by day. And that dam will eventually break. The judgment of God will eventually come flowing and rushing in 
rightly bringing wrath upon the sin. And so may we take that as a warning. That if we think God's patience with us is approval, we're just fooling ourselves. Then it moves on to say, each person then, verses 6 through 11, each person will be judged according to their works. We're going to talk a lot about the relationship, relationship between works and faith, works and, and grace um, as we go through Romans. And so I'm, I'm not going to go in too much detail here, but I know when I say that kind of phrase, each person will be judged according to the works, a lot of us have this impulse to say, wait a second, I thought we are saved by grace. Not, we're not going to be judged by works. We've got grace, right? Not works, grace. Not works, grace, right? Right? Grace, right? You're all saying that, right? And I, I, I get that impulse. That's, that's me as well. Um, but the Bible does teach a judgment according to works. It really does. Um, and as we go through Romans, we'll see how that plays out with our need for a mediator. Because we are judged according to our works. And newsflash, guys, we ain't got none. Right? And so we need someone who has righteousness that we can have. That is ours, a gift that he gives us. Right? Now there is one thing I want to point you to. Verse 7 and 8 here. This is just an insight that I got just this week just in studying. Paul seems to describe our lives in verses 6 and 7, or six, sorry, 7 through 8, as being primarily about seeking that our lives are primarily about seeking. Look at this. Verse 7. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So it puts people in two categories. Those who are seeking in their life. Uh, what does he say? Um, Glory, honor, and immortality. And then the other group are people who are seeking self. Self-seeking. It's that idolatry that we talked about last time in chapter 1. So the question is, what are you seeking? Are you seeking for uh, honor, glory, and immortality? Or are you seeking self? Are you self-seeking? And the spoiler alert, <laughs> as the next few chapters move on, the question really is, is, who are you seeking? Because in your seeking of glory and honor and immortality, you find those things in Christ. That He is that glory. He is that honor and immortality that we are all seeking. And then there's a sobering reminder that there is tribulation and distress for all who do evil. For all who do evil. No partiality. God shows no partiality, both Jew and Greek. God judges each one according to their works, according to the facts, according to the truth. Because he himself, Jesus Christ, is the truth. And so an application of this judgment of God, like we look at this and we say, how do we apply this to our lives? Is, well, we can't sit in God's throne and be that just judge who judges everyone according to their works, rightly and perfectly. But we are instructed in scripture, scripture, as I said earlier, that we are to judge rightly by imitating God's judgment insofar as we are able, as I said. We don't know the hearts of 
men. We don't know motives and things. We can't judge those things, but God can. But here's an example that I think we can immediately apply and need to apply when it comes to establishing this culture of this ministry, Coram Deo, and in the culture of a local church is this. That when someone in our tribe or our clique sins, we should call it out and call to repentance just like we would if it was someone outside of our tribe. When, when we see someone outside of our group in sin, we call it out, call them repentance. But what do we do if it's someone in our tribe? Someone in our little clique. We turn a blind eye to it. We don't speak up. We don't call to repentance. That's not judging like God judges. That's not judging in truth and righteousness. We don't show prejudice in our judgment. We show no partiality. As God shows no partiality between Jew and Greek, we show no partiality in our judgment. No prejudice in our judgment based upon whether they're rich or poor, black or white, male or female. We judge in obedience to Him who is the truth. This is why we care about the truth so much as Christians. Because Jesus Christ is the truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth is a person. And so when we dishonor the truth, we dishonor our Savior. And so we want to judge rightly because by doing so, we're imitating our God. Now, we'll move on from there to verses 12 and following to the moral law of God. Uh, this will be brief. There's this dilemma that I guess would come up as you're reading Romans chapter 2. We've talked about the judgment on the Gentiles, judgment coming for the Jews, but then you get into this issue. Like, wait a second. Judgment on Gentiles, pagans, who don't have the law of God. Let's take this and apply it here in Valdosta State. Those who don't believe the Bible. Those who don't know anything about the Bible. And we're saying that they will be judged by God according to the standard of His law. How can that be true? How can that be so? How can those who don't know or believe the Bible be judged by God according to the standard of His law? Romans 2 tells us because the moral law of God is written on their hearts. It's written on their hearts. It's part of being created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Is that the law of God is written in their hearts. And so it says this right here. It says, um, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So we see that this work of God's law is written on the hearts of all of humanity as part of the Imago that explains this basic moral impulse that we talked about. That explains why there's this general consensus upon what is moral among humanity. The other thing that Paul points to here is the witness of the conscience. That, that the conscience testifies to this reality. That there is a moral code imprinted on all of our hearts. And, and don't we all know the power of a guilty conscience? Like it weighs upon you and weighs upon you and weighs upon you. You can't escape it. Like you can't turn off the noise. You can't drown it out. And that conscience is a, a living, breathing 
loud reminder that we are made in the image of God and that there is a standard of righteousness that we have broken. Valdosta State University is a place uh, extremely burdened with guilty consciences. Guilty consciences. And that guilt is suppressed and manifested in all sorts of ways. It may look like depressed, I won't even get, I won't get out of bed, I won't eat. Or it may look like I'm going to be the most flamboyant, loud, public person you want to see because I'm suppressing the fact that I'm miserable with myself. Because my conscience is testifying that I've broken God's law. That I have, think about this, if God's law is written on our hearts, that means that at bottom of what it means to be human is to be obedient to God's word to be obedient to God's law. And so you wonder why people who are far from God are miserable, are not happy, because they were designed to live and walk in paths of righteousness. And so they're, you're living contrary to God's design. Actually, when you're living in sin, when you're living in a pattern of disobedience to God, you're actually living in a less human way. You're living contrary to the way God designed you. It's like, uh, you know, you, you take a vehicle and it's designed to run on gasoline, but you put diesel in it. It's not going to work right. It's going to make really weird sounds if it, then it's not going to make any sounds at all. <laughs> right? And so the same way it is being human, made in the image of God, we're made to live a life of peace and happiness in obedience to God's law. Because is wired in us. It's part of our spiritual DNA, if you will. And so sin makes us less human and therefore less happy. And so God's judgment, His law, is written on our hearts, and so therefore we have no excuse. And then finally, the last point here, um, verses 25 um, and on, or may, may, no, sorry, 17, 17 and following. Um, what makes a Jew a Jew? Sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke. <laughs> it's not. What makes a Jew a Jew? In the book of Romans, we're going to get into this big discussion about the relationship between the law and faith, the relationship between Jew and Gentile, circumcision, um, clean, unclean. We're going to get into all this. Jewish language. And, and so you have to remember that Christianity is the eschatological fulfillment of the Old Testament religion. So Old Testament Judaism is not the same thing that practicing Jews practice today. So you take like a Ben Shapiro or someone. It's like a high profile uh, practicing Jew. His faith is not a continuance of the Old Testament faith. Our faith is a continuance of the Old Testament faith. It's the fulfillment. It's the end of it. Eschatological. It's the end of the Old Testament faith. And so you have to remember that Christianity is coming into this world where this Jewish Messiah, this very Jewish religion, is now welcoming and becoming majority Gentile. That creates difficulties, right? 
cultural difficulties. It creates all sorts of things. Uh, and so the book of Romans is, is going to be in that context. In, in the city of Rome where Jews have been sent in dispersion, right? They've been, there's, there's, even in Rome, there's massive issues. Like the Jews were forced out of Rome at one time. Um, and so it was, it was really a hostile place. And so um, Romans is going to talk a lot about uh, the Jew-Gentile thing. And so this is kind of the beginning of that. Um, and so, you know, you read this and you might go like, this is kind of coming out of nowhere. But remember, it's, it's setting up something else. And it's also assuming that you understand the context that this letter would have been received in. But it, it kind of, this passage kind of boils down into this sort of question. Um, are you boasting in the law or are you obeying the law? So is it a boasting in the law or obedience to the law that justifies? He, he Paul, um, sort of calls out that Jewish impulse that we talked about earlier to be self-righteous and to rely on the law and works of law as your justification. And so he, he, he says things, um, for example, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, um, then he continues, um, but then while teaching others, you don't do what you teach others to do. Right? He, he, he turns it on them and says that you are actually dishonoring God. You, you think you're honoring God by teaching the law, but you're dishonoring Him because you're not obeying the law. And so he's pointing out here that self-righteousness in relying on the law for justification dishonors God because it belittles His holiness. It's like that civic righteousness thing we talked about earlier. It's, it's holding up filthy rags and being proud of it before God. And so he's dishonoring to God. And, and so he, he moves in this discussion of circumcision. I thought about this as I was reading this passage out loud. It's like this is the most time, most times I've used the word circumcision in like ever. <laughs> reading this passage back to back. Like the, what is the, uh, the rate of circumcisions, the ratio between circumcision to other words? Pretty high. And so if you've not kind of been around the church or the Bible, this sort of discussion we're talking about, that's like really weird. Like, why are you talking about circumcision right now? Like, we just had dinner. Uh, <laughs> um, and again, you have to understand the Old Testament context and the context within um, the early church. And circumcision is going to be of massive significance in the book of Romans. Because circumcision was this sort of um, ritual is of... Uh, entrance into the old covenants. So it marked Jewish males as being Jewish, of being descendants of Abraham, those who have received God's promises. And then when you get into the New Testament church and you've got these Gentiles who haven't been circumcised coming into the church, the question is, do we make them receive circumcision before becoming a Christian? Right? And there's this issue that comes up. So Paul is bringing that up. He's like, you know what? What really matters? It's not your covenant status in Abraham according to the flesh that matters. In other words, it doesn't matter that you're a, an offspring of Abraham. And Jesus says that, that God can make offsprings of Abraham from these stones. Right? It doesn't matter that Abraham is your pappy. Right? <laughs> what matters is that you be, must be born again the work of the Spirit. It's not your covenant status in Abraham according to the flesh. 
It's really your covenant status in Christ according to the Spirit. Right. And so he, he talks about this at the end of the chapter, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. So, circumcision of the flesh is outward. But what matters is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And ultimately, this was the promise of the New Covenant. Right? In the New Covenant, God promises that... um, what the old covenant was unable to accomplish would be accomplished by God Himself in the new covenant. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 26 and 27. The Lord says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So, what the old covenant couldn't do, it can't, couldn't change your heart. It can show you this law written down on paper, right? It says uh, um, by the letter, right? The circumcision of the flesh is by the letter. Moses told you to do it. You can do that. It, it tells you what to do, but it doesn't give you the power to actually do it. You can read the Ten Commandments all day long and not be given the power to obey. So, and what Paul is saying here is that unless you have received circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, unless you have been cut in the heart and that flesh removed and a new heart put in its place, it's in vain. And this is what's beautiful about this Ezekiel passage in the New Covenant. Look at all the I wills. Who is doing the work of redemption in this New Covenant? God Himself. I think it's six. I underlined them. It says, I will give. I will put. I will remove. I will give. I will put. And I will cause. So these two verses... There's there's six verbal phrases here in which God is the one doing the action. God is the one doing the action. That's the beauty. The gospel, there's this hymn, and I should have wrote the lyrics down because it's like partially in my brain but not enough to communicate to you. But the idea is this, that the law tells you to run, but the gospel gives you feet. You see, there's, there's harmony. The law says run, but the gospel gives you feet. It gives you power to actually obey what the law commands. The new covenant accomplishes what God commands. This was the controversy between St. Augustine and Pelagius. Okay? There's a reason why there's a saint in front of Augustine's name and not Pelagius' name. Right? So Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. And this was the discussion between Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine had this prayer that said um, that God would, would work, work in me what He wills. In other words, that what God commands, that, that He would work it in me. And Pelagius took exception to that. And so what Augustine was saying is that I don't have the ability to do what God 
commands because of my flesh, that he must make me able to obey. And Pelagius took an exception to that and says, no, you are able. If God commands it, it implies that you are able. That's the, the fatal error of Pelagianism. That because God tells you to do it, then you must be actually able to do it. And Augustine says, no, because of the fall, because of original sin and our indwelling sin nature that inclines our heart towards evil and not towards good, we are actually morally unable to do what is right. Even though God commands that we don't have the moral ability to do it. And that led to the whole discussion of free will and sovereignty of God and these things between Augustine and uh, Pelagius. But at the heart of that issue that we found in Augustine and Pelagius and later in Luther and, and the Catholic Church and the Reformation and, and ongoing today, um, and I would argue in the Calvinist and Arminian discussion, is really boiling down to what do we mean by salvation by grace alone? Because see, if salvation is by grace alone, it removes all boasting from man and gives all glory to God. And Paul is setting the scene here in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3 to, to have this universal condemnation that every offspring of Adam is dead in their sin. Hopeless. Lost. And we all find ourselves under the inevitable judgment of God. We are all condemned by our lawlessness. We are all unable to correct what has been broken. And we are all at the mercy of Almighty God. That's where we find ourselves. And the good news, which we'll get into in more detail next week and on, is that our God is merciful. That He desires the salvation of His people. He is patient. And His patience should lead you to repentance right now. Don't presume upon it. Receive his patience and turn in repentance. You see, if we're all under this inevitable judgment of God, salvation must be by grace and grace alone. God must do something. He must take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And the good news is he's promised to do it. And the even better news is that he has fulfilled those promises. So do not suppress this truth that you're hearing tonight. If you're under the conviction of sin, do not suppress this truth. Do not believe the false assumptions about yourself. Do not believe the false assumptions about God, but rather cling to Christ. Okay. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word that gives us truth. And Lord, we thank You that You are patient with us especially as we've received this truth. And, and most of us in this room have received it most of our lives. What a great blessing. We do confess that so often we have taken it for granted, that we have heard it, we've heard your word and your law, but we've not been doers of it. God, forgive us for that when we judge others, we know in our hearts that we do the same things. So forgive us of our sin. And Lord, we pray um, that we would all be moved to a greater appreciation and desire for Christ as our only hope of salvation. And, and, and right now, Lord, I pray that 
those hearts that are burdened by a guilty conscience, um, that that burden would be lifted as all the sin is placed upon Jesus. We've heard your promise of full forgiveness for all who confess and believe. And God, so we ask that you would bring that um, to bear in the lives of everyone here tonight. Praise in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.